So when you think about general education and when you think about an educated person, what kind of qualities does the person have? To me, an educated person is a person of wisdom, a person of life experience, a person with empathy. I feel like without those human qualities, you know, I don't think you're an educated person. Being a teacher in different countries is definitely a different experience. How does it feel to be a teacher in India? I don't necessarily completely agree with where the modern education is taking the next generation. But I also don't want to look back into the past and say that that was completely okay. I'd be somewhere in the middle. I think we can learn from both the past and the present, and hopefully we can guide the future generation accordingly. Hello, Tassal. Hi, Paulis. Hey, where are you at now? I'm in a city called Missouri, uh, in the Himalayas. Okay. And uh, for those who might yet not know who Tessal is, so Tessal is an English teacher from India, residing in the state of Meghalaya, which is not the same word as Himalaya, uh, oddly enough. So we were just discussing the differences between these two words. So Tessal, could you please remind me and also the audience, what's the difference between the words Meghalaya and the word Himalaya? Yeah, uh, I mean... I think they should be pronounced the same way, Himalaya and Meghalaya. They're both derived from Sanskrit. Um, so Himalaya means abode of snow and Meghalaya means abode of clouds. Um, and Meghalaya is where I'm from and Himalaya is where I'm currently at. Ah, right. Very good. Very good. And uh, today I and Tassal will speak a lot about uh, Indian languages. We'll speak a lot about English as well. And likewise, we'll speak about the Garo people. And uh, yeah, so maybe let's begin with that. So who are the Garo people, Tassal? So um, Garo people, um, like Paul has mentioned, is an ethnic minority group of people. Uh, residing in Northeast India in a region in Meghalaya called Garo Hills. And uh, what kind of language do you guys speak? So we speak uh, Garo. Um, in my language, we call it Atsuku. So Garo is from Sino-Tibetan language family. It's from the Tibeto-Burman sub-branch of that family. Um, I think the closest language that I can think of that's similar to Garo would be Boro, which is spoken in Assam. And uh, when you compare your language with other Northeast Indian languages, uh, is it very unique? Like, uh, could a person that don't know any of these languages spot that there's a difference? Yes, they would be able to spot a lot of differences phonologically mostly um, I will I would say syntactically as well although many languages in Northeast India are related to each other uh, they're mutually incomprehensible so we can't understand what the other person is saying I mean someone who's speaking another language uh, from the Northeast 
And uh, in general, how many different kind of language families are there in India? Because uh, predominantly, let's say in Europe, you will you will find the Indo-European branch and the Finno-Ugric branch ma mainly, right? Mm -hmm. There's two in the whole continent. What about India? Well, you do find Indo-European languages in India as well. Um, I think the the languages, the Indo-European languages are mostly spoken in North India. They're from the Indo-Aryan sub-branch of the family. There are four major um, language families you can find in India. So one is Indo-European. We've got Sino-Tibetan. We have the Tibeto-Burman branch of the Sino-Tibetan family here. Uh, we've got Austro-Asiatic, and then we have the Dravidian languages, which are spoken in South India. So knowing how many different languages and language branches there are in India, because I don't know the exact number of different languages of, in India, but I know it's a big number, <laughs> definitely in the hundreds. <laughs> so how do people communicate between each other? Because if every region has their own language, or uh, that most of the time is not even comprehensible, how do you guys talk to each other? Let's say a person from the north to the person in the west or in the south, or maybe in the center? I would say um, two main lingua franca, um, lingua francas, so English and Hindi. I'm more familiar with English, uh, but in North India, it would be Hindi. Um, in South India, I think they would use English to communicate with each other, people speaking different South Indian languages, but you would also hear Hindi being spoken in South India too, and also in Northeast India to some extent, yeah. So when you think about the lingua franca of the Middle East or of Africa, maybe Arabic would come to mind. If you think about Europe, maybe it's going to be English for, for the current, at least, era. Uh, when you think about India, though, Hindi would come to your mind to the people that don't know much about the Indian languages. But of course, it's much more complex just because the country is called India and the language is called Hindi doesn't mean that it's the lingua franca of the region in general. So how come it did not become the lingua franca that everyone knows, like let's say Arabic is? I think India is quite diverse ethnically and linguistically. And that adds complexity to the political linguistic system here in India. Um, promoting one Indian language as the dominant or as the main language of India uh, would be a risk because I think that has the potential to break the country up, if I may say so. Um, I know English is spoken because of our colonial past, but that's the neutral language that I can think of that doesn't really belong to anybody, but at the same time belongs to everybody in India. Um, and as a result, I would personally consider English as the neutral language for India. Hindi would divide a lot of people, um, mm -hmm. divide a lot of uh, regions in India. Right. And uh, Hindi, as I understand, is also 
uh, comes from the Indo-European language branch, just like Sanskrit. And I believe like a Sanskrit mm -hmm. speaker should understand Hindi and vice versa. Whereas, uh, well, not totally, but to an extent. Whereas uh, if we take languages like Tamil, Tamil is a Dravidian language. So it's mm -hmm. uh, from a completely different language branch. And it's uh, many people say that it's native to India, whereas there's a, there are a lot of debates if Sanskrit is native. And uh, just because I had a couple of videos out comparing Lithuanian and Sanskrit, and they seem to get quite a, quite a lot of attention. And mm. uh, unfortunately, in the comments, it was not much uh, discussion about that, but more of what is the mother of all languages <laughs> in India? Is it, is it Tamil? Is it Sanskrit? So it seems like it's very hot and uh, politically activated topic. So why are there so many conflicts when it comes to Sanskrit and Tamil? I, I wouldn't have known this if not for the comments uh, under the videos. What's happening there? Uh, I think both languages are considered classical languages in India, Sanskrit and Tamil. Um, I mean, a lot, uh, a lot of Indian languages have borrowings from Sanskrit, definitely. Like my state, Meghalaya, the name was derived from Sanskrit, although um, no one in my state speaks Sanskrit-based languages. Mm -hmm. uh, Tamil, too, is not a Sanskrit-based language, although it has a lot of borrowings from Sanskrit. I, I would say the relationship between Hindi and Sanskrit would be more or less um, like Latin and Italian, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So if you can consider Latin the native language of Italy, then I think Sanskrit could be considered native language of India, although I don't think anyone speaks Sanskrit anymore. At least, I mean, you can find in religious texts, Hindu religious texts and all that, but um, it's not really spoken in everyday life, yeah. I heard that there's a couple of villages that still use Sanskrit as their main language. And uh, as well that there are some efforts put into reviving the language uh, by the government. I, I don't know if that is true. But, uh, but yeah, it seems like it's still, it's not as Latin, which is a completely dead language. But uh, it's definitely being used much less than in the distant past. Yeah. I, I I don't know if it's still being used. I don't know about that, but I do consider Sanskrit a, a dead language, as in it's not changing anymore. Linguistically speaking, if a language stops changing or evolving, then it's a dead language. So Sanskrit is now frozen in religious texts and classical texts. So people do still study Sanskrit, um, People do even do degrees in Sanskrit, but I don't know if people still use it in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Well, um, I, I am not an authority to comment on that. Uh, I, I just can uh, parrot what uh, I have read in, mm -hmm. uh, in some replies. But, uh, but yeah, uh, so that's the situation of Sanskrit at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there are definitely these kind of bigger languages or the languages that uh, more people speak, like mm -hmm. let's say Hindi and Tamil to an extent, maybe Sanskrit, but not anymore. And uh, interestingly, English is the language that is neutral uh, at the moment, at least. But uh, yeah, from my perspective, at least, I don't think a lot of people will agree with that. But it's an, it's an easy language 
that many people can actually learn and understand, and it helps to just kind of communicate between different kind of groups of people. Because for, for a Garo person to learn Malayalam and vice versa, I think it would be much more difficult than <laughs> for both to communicate in English. So, so in a way, uh, it's a good thing. Although, of course, not many people would agree with that. But uh, the English spoken in India is quite different from, let's say, English spoken in the UK or the US or Australia or New Zealand. I wouldn't call that there's an Indian accent. It feels more like there's an Indian dialect. So it's a, mm -hmm. it over time, it kind of became a branch of the English language. So how different is it? And could we actually call it a dialect in the current era? Um, I would say second language studies would consider it a second language dialect or unstable dialect to some extent, because it tends to change and vary depending on a person, depending on the individual or a group of people in India. Um, but there are a lot of phrases, a lot of words that are used in India, uh, which are not used in other countries like the UK or the US. And <laughs> I teach in an American school. So when, you know, Americans come to my school, they're quite surprised or they find it funny to hear those words or those phrases being spoken by many Indian people here. So how come? Uh, why, why do they find it funny? I think I kind of empathize or I kind of understand where they're coming from, why they find it funny. Uh, it's not necessarily because of accent, but my own language has a lot of dialects and there's a mm -hmm. lot of dialectal differences. And when I hear certain word, certain words being used, being spoken by certain people, I don't know. I, th I think it's the it's the it's the strangeness of it that that brings about that comedic effect for some reason. Um, I think strangeness can be funny sometimes. I think, and it's not necessarily condescending. I, I don't want to take it that way, but um, I think everyone has that. I think I, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, and if I if I were to think about my own mother tongue, Garo, and people from another region speaking my language. Uh, it just sounds funny because I'm not used to hearing it in that way, but I do understand completely what they're saying. I just, just yeah. doesn't sound <laughs> familiar in some way. So I think they have that. Well, I, I get you because uh, a Lithuanian trying to, let's say, speak British uh, would sound also a little bit funny because it might sound forced. And uh, that which is forced also brings this kind of comedic effect. And uh, also the same as uh, when a person tries to learn Lithuanian, let's say an American is learning Lithuanian, uh, you do hear some differences uh, phonetically, uh, but most of the time, at least for me, it's actually very pleasant. I really like accents. Uh, as long as you can understand what the other person is saying, uh, accents are actually quite interesting and it, I think it also brings the language to life because you get different flavors of the same thing. You know, like if, if you only had like one kind of ice cream and if it's mint, and let's say many people don't like mints, <laughs> well, that would suck. But if you can choose, uh, yeah, it makes your life uh, happier. And uh, coming back to your native language, uh, how many speakers are there? Uh, if I were to total it up, I think it might be around 500,000. 
have hundreds of thousands all together mm -hmm. i'm thinking about not just people in garo hills but i'm just thinking of people my people in bangladesh or my people in tripura or my people in burma um of course mm -hmm. they speak my language a little differently like i said different dialect sure. uh, a different variety of the same language so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's interesting when the the group is scattered around the region and one part of the group is inside one country another part of the group is inside of the other country but uh, of course like uh, na national borders are not drawn most of the time to represent ethnicities to like 100% you know they are drawn on various other kind of circumstances so so that's kind of understandable but from what i know also the the region where you live now where mainly a lot of garo people live as well was not always part of India. So what was it before it became part of Northern India? Uh, I was trying to find some information about that. And I just found out that there aren't any records before the British colonial era. I think the whole of Northeast, more or less, was part of the Bengal province during the British era. And then it became part of the Assam province. And then slowly, the current seven, eight states that we have in the north in Northeast India got their statehood um, over time in the 20th century. So that's how it happened. But but we don't have a lot of detailed records about how things came to be, how people got to the states, got to that region of India, got to that region of the world. Uh, mm -hmm. There's not. Um, many records about that. Although uh, each tribe or each people group would have their own oral tradition as to where they came from. For example, my people say that we come from Tibet. Although I was reading, reading up on it a little bit, and may not happen that we came from Tibet. We may have passed uh, through the region of Tibet. So, well, yeah, those are the complexities when you come to think about ethnographic knowledge, because uh, most of the tales or the stories or the histories or the myths on the past, you, well, you cannot really check them. And that's also one problem with history as a subject altogether, because, okay, maybe there are some written files about a certain event in the past. Well, who knows if the person writing those uh, kind of files <laughs> was honest and not uh, leaning to one or another kind of political circumstance or no, it's a, it's a very complicated subject. I, I think one guy, his name is Timothy Snyder. He he did a very good uh, lecture series on the history of Ukraine in the Yale University. And uh, he kind of separated national stories or national myths from history. Mm. So like one thing is fairly objective uh, as events have happened, where another one is like a narrative a story how things have happened so mm -hmm. it's very hard to trace and also to separate the two but when i come to think about india and indian history it doesn't seem like there were so many historical records or like it, it doesn't seem like you guys have kept the chronicles like the chinese did so you were not that keen on recording every single event in general not my people because we didn't have um a written script, um, mm -hmm. although there's also another oral tradition about how we lost that. Um, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but I, I think 
this part of India where I'm teaching right now, North India and South India, the Dravidian people and um, the North Indian people, they have detailed records since Vedic times and all that. So they know, they kind of know where they came from. Um, they kind of know how they evolved and how they, I mean, how their culture evolved, how their languages evolved. So they have those traditions, yeah. So even after the Vedas and the Upanishads, it kind of continued to be recording. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think Hindi is, I, I think Hindi is well documented, for example, and I think you can trace it back all the way to Sanskrit if you were to read some linguistic literatures. Yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, knowing the colorfulness and the diversity of the Indian region, and uh, from what I understand, it's more or less like a federal state, if I'm correct. Yes, more or less, yeah. So that's the f interesting part of the more or less. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, how is it? <laughs> I'm still trying. I'm, I'm personally still trying to understand like the political scenario in India, for instance. It, it, like I said, I don't. I, I shouldn't have said more or less. I think it is uh, more like a federal constitution. I hope I'm not offending anyone <laughs> by saying that. Um, so each state can have their own, let's say, official language or languages, uh, own constitution, but we also have the central one. The, so, mm -hmm. yeah, which is executed by the central government of India. Is everything kind of calm and uh, laid back when it comes to different kind of states? Or are there some tensions happening inside of India? Um, internal tensions, ethnic tensions, linguistic tensions. I mean, even back in my region, Northeast India, it's not just at the center, but also in the States, we do have ethnic tensions. Because uh, even in a state like mine, even in a small state like mine, Meghalaya, we've got many different ethnic, ethnic groups, many different languages, not just Garo, not just Kasi. Okay, so India does definitely seem like a very interesting region. But let's go back to, to you as a person instead of the entire nation and the entire world. And uh, let's speak a little bit about your profession as a teacher. Because, uh, because working as a teacher, I can empathize because I'm also an English teacher. Uh, I also teach Lithuanian, but uh, the main part of my work is, well, it's, co it's connected with teaching English. And uh, being a teacher in different countries is definitely a different experience. So let's say being a teacher in the, we can say in the US, in Lithuania and in India would be somewhat similar, but also very different. So how is it, uh, how does it feel to be a teacher in India? Teaching back home, where I come from and teaching here to very different contexts, I would say. When I say here, I'm talking about my school mm -hmm. um, in particular. It's a liberal school. Um, it's an American school. So the context is a little bit different from the schools I used to teach back home where it's more traditional. Um, you know, students tend to obey the rules. Um, I'm not necessarily speaking about how they did academically um but back home i did not have to deal with discipline as much in the sense that it was just 
expected of them to act in a certain way, to behave in a certain way, and that was fine. But here, I feel like when it comes to value education, uh, I really have to teach <laughs> the kids. Um, I'm just I'm not talking in terms of discipline, but just in terms of hey, this is perhaps maybe you might want to choose this way instead of that. Um, giving them options, but also directing them in the right way can be a little mm-hmm. bit complicated sometimes in that in, in that sense. Um, but I've learned, I've grown a lot as a teacher, teaching in very different contexts, in a traditional context, in a more liberal context. Um, and I've decided that I'm somewhere in between, actually. I don't necessarily completely agree with where the modern education is taking the next generation but i also don't want to look back into the past and say that that was completely okay i'd be somewhere in the middle i think we can learn from both the past and the present and hopefully we can guide the future generation accordingly so that's interesting uh when you think about where the modern education is heading uh, where do you think it's heading? I, I'm speaking from the perspective of my current school. I feel like there's that idea that, hey, so let the child decide for himself or herself how they should act. But I like to think of myself as a child. I'm like, would I have known how to act as a child? I think that that's yeah. a little bit extreme of modern education i'm like we actually need to, i'm like why are we in school if we're not going to teach them if they can act on their own it's like look i'm a i'm a literature i was a literature student and i'm a literature literature teacher and one of the novels that i tend to go back to is lord of the flies where the kids try to create their own system um uh, when they're stranded on an island right so it reminds me of that when we let the children decide for themselves what is right and wrong. I, I don't think they always know. I think sometimes we might need to guide them. I feel like modern education might be going a little extreme towards that side of like, yeah, let them decide for themselves. But I'm like, yeah, but maybe sometimes we might need to like tell them directly what's right and what's wrong. I mean, we don't want them to choose something terrible. <laughs> uh, but I'm not, by, by that, I'm not condoning like the like that control that a traditional education had. I think, like I said before, I, I, I'm somewhere in between when it comes to educational philosophy. Well, unfortunately, like when we think about how people think and make decisions, uh, when we think about an individual on individual level, mm-hmm. we can take into many kind of different aspects and think about how it's better to do a certain thing. But when you think about uh, a larger kind of a domain, let's say public education or something like that, it's not as easy to be detailed. So you more or less start thinking in black and white kind of terms because mm-hmm. it's just easier. So mm-hmm. so it, I, I, that's, I think, one of the reasons why it's either, okay, we're doing it like very strictly, mm-hmm. like uh, the teacher is the authority, the student is the follower, Mm-hmm. The students listen to their teachers. The teachers are absolute yeah. gods, that, and they know the everything. That's the traditional way. Yeah. I, Whereas I always, on the other one, yeah. On the other one, maybe I, I wouldn't say all schools do that. I shouldn't accuse all schools of doing that. Uh, 
but there are schools who would be like, yeah, let the child decide for himself or herself. Like maybe that's a little too extreme. I think I would say the other extreme. Um, I do believe in some objective good and bad because without sure. that, like how do we know what is good and what is bad, right? So um, I personally have been struggling for the past three, four years in regard to this. And maybe it's not every school, but there are some school, liberal schools that I've come across that go to the extreme of like, let them decide for themselves. Like, yeah, sometimes maybe we might need to say what is the objective good and bad in that situation, because otherwise how would they even know you know, like, um, oh. yeah, I know I sound a little conservative when I say this, but I no, you don't. You <laughs> sound like you have common sense, which is different yeah. <laughs> in this kind of regard, because, well, many people don't even believe that there's anything objective in general. Mm. Everyone, well, the current climates of intellectual thought is leaning more towards that everything is subjective and that's why everything is true. Whereas uh, yeah. there's no, nothing objective and that there's an objective truth is only your truth. And uh, in this kind of situation, uh, it kind of invites like chaos in certain yeah. regards because think, there's, yeah. no, there's no way how to monitor what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's yeah. going the right way and what's going the wrong way. It's just like, mm. it's like utter chaos and... Uh, yeah. And, you know, you cannot go to that extreme and you cannot go to the strict dominant order extreme where everything is governed by one idea of reality and everyone has to obey. Uh, but uh, as I've mentioned before, probably for people, it's very, for some people, it's very hard to understand that it doesn't have to be like that or like that. There's like mm -hmm. an in infinitude of possibilities somewhere in between. And uh, when you think about even different kind of religious thoughts like Taoism, it's always trying to find a balance or even mm -hmm. Buddhism, the middle way, right? Yeah. So you want, and it's, it's not, and you cannot really put it on paper because it's more complex than just like logical thoughts. So it's more based on feeling and mm -hmm. uh, understanding of the situation, how you should act uh, mm -hmm. as a teacher or as a student. And that's, I think that's the beauty of teachers that they should understand how to act and mm -hmm. be agile and able to adapt to situations mm -hmm. and but also guide other people so they would be also agile and could adapt to situations mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah if, if if i had a classroom with 30 students who would do whatever they want mm -hmm. <laughs> like <laughs> imagine the situation <laughs> So you oh, should God. give them some freedom, but you mm -hmm. also, in that freedom, you should also be like, yeah, but I'm here, the adult with uh, experience, and uh, I kind of have seen what works and what doesn't. So yeah. you have your own freedom and subjective mm -hmm. understanding, but uh, also like, let's tilt it a little bit. So you're like guiding them mm -hmm. instead of ordering them. So you're mm -hmm. kind of acting as a guide, which is, uh, yeah. I think it's a good position to stand in. Yeah, I, and I think that's the middle path is, is in like guiding them, um, providing rationale for why something is good and something is bad um, and not dictatorial like the traditional way. But I also don't want to go to the extreme of the liberals isn't like, hey, just do whatever you want, you know? Uh, no, actually, 
let's think about this. Let's talk about why this may affect you and affect other people. And I do like to respect individuality because I like being an individual myself, but I also understand as human beings, we are social beings, you know, and our actions impact other people. And I think it's very important for students to understand that, yes, you have your opinions and I'm happy that you have them, but you also have to understand how your opinions or your speech or your actions might impact another person. Uh, yeah, so I think that's, for me, is the middle path, I think. Well, and that, then you actually, you kind of explain that, you know, you have choices, but you also have responsibilities. So, yeah. it's so it's, it's not like you just do whatever you want uh, because, hey, life is not just about you. And, yeah. and everyone should understand that whether it's an adult or a kid, that like uh, the entire existence is not just about you and the external world is not just your toys. You know, it's like mm. also, it's also entities that have their own life and decisions and their own re internal realities. And you have to respect that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, so I think that's the danger of the extreme liberal or liberal way that it, when you teach the kids that it's only you, it's in all your decisions and it's only your desires. Well, then you think that you are the only one existing. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's, that's, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. That's very dangerous. Well, anyways, and from what I know, you have mainly worked in private schools. So am I correct? Yes, you're correct. So how is the public education system in India? Is there a big difference uh, for, between private and public schools? I'm only speaking from my experience. I think there <laughs> is a huge difference. Um, um, private schools are more structured in many ways. Um, they have better infrastructure for the most part. And you get quality education in private schools. Um, I'm not saying you cannot get that in government schools, but it does depend. And I have seen a lot of government schools not providing quality education. But I've also seen a few um, in my experience so far, uh, government schools that provide quality education to kids. Um, I think it does. Uh, look, I think that the thing is the go government schools tend to have um, better teachers in some ways, just because mm -hmm. um, in government schools, you are paid better. And mm -hmm. that goes to um, government or state or central universities as well, which are government, you know, run schools, uh, colleges. Um, so, but I think in terms of K to 12 schools, I would say private schools are still better just because of that kind of structure that they have. In government schools, I feel like there is that, hey, um, you don't go to school, nothing's going to happen kind of a thing. And I'm not saying all government schools, I don't want people to misunderstand me, but the schools that I have seen, especially in rural areas, that tends to happen a lot. Like maybe a teacher may be good and teacher may be paid a lot, but a teacher may not even turn up to teach 
in that school, so which is unfortunate. So that happens a lot in rural areas. And fortunately for people living in urban areas, they have better educational opportunities. So, When you say don't turn up to work, do you mean they just don't come to teach and not inform about that? <laughs> like I said before, uh, it's only from my experience. I have seen teachers like who work in government schools in rural areas, not all, like I said before, not all, there are exceptions, um, who will show up to work maybe once or twice a week, but they won't go the rest of the week. Um, Holy crap, that's crazy. Yeah, and I I feel sad about it because, because I do care about education a lot. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, those children in rural areas, they are not able to um, get good opportunities because of that, you know? So. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, I also, well, both of us are teachers. It's, <laughs> we're kind of biased, but uh, definitely education is important. <laughs> yes. So that's, that's for sure. But, but it surprised me when you have said that, uh, public schools are better paid. Well, teachers are paid better in public schools than in private. Of course, not always, but, uh, on, in, general, because, in general, because in Lithuania, let's say at least a few years ago, um, it was the other way around. And uh, many teachers from public schools, uh, well, they just quit their job and go work in private, work as tutors, or just change professions. And currently, we're in a very bad situation educationally because many teachers decided to stop working and let's say uh, I teach online I'm I work as a private tutor now as well and uh, one of my students he's an eighth grader and he says that well he hasn't yet had any English clashes from September because they can't find an English teacher and there are a lot of English teachers but uh, if you think about physics or mathematics uh, sometimes it's even worse and uh, one of the main problems and why, why people go on strike teachers why they go on strike or they quit jobs is well low pay because it kind of shows that the government doesn't care so if you value your teachers you pay them well which i think if that is the situation in india indian government is doing a good job of in this regard at least yeah. but uh well but mm. at back home it's a it's a little bit different so I can't, um, I can't speak for all states, but um, yeah, in my state, I found that. But there are private schools that get some amount of funding from the government, which may not be consistent or which may be unfairly done and does happen. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. In private schools, they get some funding from the government and the teachers are supposed to pay, uh, are supposed to be paid a lot more than what they're getting, mm -hmm. but they're not getting that. And as a result, they go on strikes, like you said. Um, yeah, so there's that. But there's an exception with um, private schools, though international schools pay well. So mm -hmm. if you are fortunate enough to get into an international school in India, uh, they pay well. I'm not saying... Um, in comparison to other international schools in other countries, but I'm just saying within India, I would mm -hmm. say international schools pay the best and then government schools and then private 
schools, which are national schools, but not international. Yeah. Yeah. Because even here where I live in Madeira, uh, private school, even the word associates itself with the word prestige, mm-hmm. same in Lithuania. So if you are sending your kids into a private school, it means you're also paying for the studies and it kind of brings prestige to your family and you expect better education for your children. So, so it, it's interesting that in some ways in India, it's a little bit different, um, but of course, not totally. So when you think about the Indian education system in general, uh, where do you think it's at? Is it going the right way or it could do with some improvements? Like for you as a teacher yourself, because mm-hmm. you're, you're actually in the classroom and uh, you are the one that does the teaching. So does the guidelines of how you should do your work actually make sense? Or maybe they are not as strict and they don't impact you. It doesn't really impact me currently because I teach in an international school, which does not follow the Indian uh, education system. Um, But having come from an Indian education system, I do know the flaws in the system. On paper, um, the educational philosophy, everything sounds amazing. But I think India is struggling to move away from the traditional methods and approaches, which is actually preventing um, the students from growing, um, developing, um, it's a lot of rote memorization, uh, rote learning still in a lot. I'm not saying all, but in a lot of Indian schools. And I think there are good private schools in India, not international ones, but national private schools mm-hmm. that are moving away from that and they're doing pretty well. Uh, in terms of experiential learning, in terms of uh, getting students to think critically, um, all of that, they're moving away from road memorization. And I'm not in any way degrading memorization. Uh, I'm just saying that there are other ways to be learning and not just one way. And one way might work for one student, but there are many ways that we can uh, present to students. And Tassal, uh, because I feel like uh, we already have been speaking about many things and uh, I want to respect your time. So I'll actually move on to the last part of the episode. And I want to ask you, what are your plans for the future? Like uh, knowing where you are at now, uh, where would you like to be in a year? I'm at crossroads right now. Um, I'd like to teach abroad. Mm-hmm. But this is where the issue comes in. I'm an English teacher from India. Usually people don't. There's a stigma attached to mm-hmm. English teachers from India. They just assume that you can't teach English just because you're not from one of the, you know, seven native speaking countries or whatever they call them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's the unfortunate thing about English teaching. Part of me regrets it, but part of me feels like I, this is what I wanted to do and I'm doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. I do want to teach abroad, um, maybe eventually become a teacher trainer even, uh, because I've had really bad experiences in teacher training institutions. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, I did drop out of a teacher training 
institution when I first started teaching just because I was like, I don't agree with how you're doing it and the reasons, your rationale, everything. So I can be a little rebellious that way, but I think, I don't know. I, I'm not as idealistic as I was when I first started teaching, but at the same time, mm -hmm. I do want to have a hand in preparing the next generation for a better world, for a better future. And I, I feel like education could be one of the ways to do that. And to get into yeah. teacher training would be great. Um, I still have to figure out how, how I'll get there. But um, yeah, so my plans would be, I don't know, teaching abroad uh, and also maybe becoming a teacher trainer in the near future. So, Cool, cool. And uh, would you like to become a teacher trainer in one of the common like TEFL, CELTA, TESOL kind of institutions? Or I mean, do you have some other ideas in mind if it's not to privates? Uh, you know, I, I, I used to think that I only wanted to do that, right? Like training teachers yeah. to become uh, teachers of English as a foreign language. But I've mm -hmm. kind of started enjoying general education as well um, and education more holistically. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't mind becoming a teacher trainer in a general education setting and not just TEFL or TESOL or yeah, one of those. Um, but I don't mind, I don't mind either way. Like I, I don't mind getting started in TEFL, but maybe gradually move into general education teacher training as well. So. So when you think about general education and when you think about an educated person, like how do you imagine an educated person? Like what kind of qualities does the person have? Uh, what um, kind of uh, knowledge does the person have? What, how would you describe an educated person that you would like to help create? Uh, I don't think I can create an educated person person by training teachers or by teaching students in schools to me an educated person is a person of wisdom a person of life experience a person with empathy i feel like without those uh, human qualities you know things that make you humane things that make you make a difference in someone's life. I don't think you're educated. I mean, you can have 10 PhDs, but I think without that kind of wisdom to use knowledge, to make a difference in people's lives, including your own, you know, I don't think you're an educated person. Um, so yeah, so for me, I don't want to degrade anyone. Let's say someone who's just graduated high school, does not have any degree, but he, he or she is, um, making a livelihood an honest livelihood with their own hands i think i respect them so much i don't think i could have I, uh, done that but they are educated in their field because of their experience because of their wisdom in that field you know and i don't necessarily see formal education as uh contributing as being the main contribution to um someone's education but it is it's 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 a part of that uh, i can see it being a part of that but i don't think think it's what makes someone an educated person so that's my philosophy i would say 
Okay, very good, very nice. And if we take three adjectives, uh, educated, smart, and wise, what do you think is the difference between these three adjectives for you? How would you describe every single person? And which would you prefer? I would prefer wise, if I may speak about preference first. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to be a wise person. I don't think I always am, um, to be honest. Um, it takes a lot of courage to be a wise person. It doesn't only take experience. I think it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of humility to be a wise person. Um, smart. Smart is, I think, for me, it's just being sharp. You're like you can yeah. <laughs> think on your feet. You're able to say quickly. Uh, maybe use a little bit of wit. That would be smart for me. And knowledgeable definitely mm-hmm. comes under smart as well. Uh, a wise mm-hmm. person may not necessarily be knowledgeable about everything, but because of their life perspective, they're able to still access any kind of knowledge that is mm-hmm. uh, presented to them. And the other one was educated, right? I would mm-hmm. say a wise person is an educated person. I would use it synony- uh, those two synonymously. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't say a knowledgeable person is educated. There are some aspects of education in them, but I wouldn't say they're mm-hmm. an educated person. So that would be my response. Right. Good answer. Very good answer. And what do you think? We kind of know how to reach the level of educated in some ways, at least in my mind, I think mainly like how I imagine an educated person is like a person that has just acquired a lot of knowledge in terms of the world and has manners also. So it's more to do with acquisition, like what you you acquire throughout life and throughout throughout your education for formal or informal. Mm -hmm. A smart person, as you have said, is more to do with sharpness and thinking quick on your feet. Also, it it kind of transcends the good and bad because a smart people can be a very good person or a very bad person, you know? Yeah, so yeah, true. so it's, it's more like, it's more like just being sharp as a knife. You know, you can do good things yeah. with knives mm-hmm. and you can do bad ones. Whereas wise, it's like, it's the most abstract because uh, it's it more abstract, yeah. to do a, it's more to do with your like uh, perspective and understanding of the world, understanding mm-hmm. other people, uh, having empathy, and uh, just kind of having an innate feeling of how the world is, how you are, and how do 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 these two things come together in like a moment-to-moment basis. This is like what I imagine when I hear the word "wise," and uh, but I do not know how to help people to go this path towards wisdom. And Mm. do you think that all people actually should go this path? Are all people meant to go this path? Or, you know, it doesn't require for everyone to be wise? I think people should aim to be wise. I don't think there is one, one way to teach someone to be wise. You can definitely impart some wisdom, um, I mean, to your students. Um, But at the end of the day, I think wisdom is a 
personal journey as well. And like I said before, I think one requirement to be wise would be humility, which is really difficult to achieve. Um, yeah, and I'm saying that about myself as well. <laughs> you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I think I sometimes in terms of when you acquire a lot of knowledge, actually that prevents you from becoming wise because you become arrogant, you become proud, you become, I would say, too caught up in your own knowledge that you forget to use it to apply that knowledge, you know? And I don't think there's one way, if I may say it succinctly, there's mm-hmm. no one way. I think it's a personal journey and I think it requires a lot of humility. Um, but I think everyone should aim for wisdom because it is a lack of wisdom right now that's causing all of these conflict <laughs> in the world. A lot of, yeah, hurtful things being said because of the lack of wisdom. Yeah, but it does feel like certain people just don't give a damn about wisdom and they there's no, that's not their yeah. goal in life. Yeah, and I think it also is wise to understand that as well. Not everyone will attain that and not everyone will aim for that and not everyone will take that seriously. Forget about wisdom. They might not even take knowledge seriously. They might not even knowledge acquisition seriously, right? There will be a lot of people like that. And I think... Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things about wisdom that I've been learning myself is that sometimes you just need to understand human nature and sometimes people may not act the way you want them to. And I think that that has been really helpful for me as a teacher, just because it's like, Hmm, I know that this student definitely does not want to listen about this one. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I will direct him in another way or I will let natural consequences teach him the lesson you know sometimes wisdom means you just have to mm-hmm. let go not in a not not in a, not in a manner mm-hmm. uh, that you don't care about the person it's just sometimes you need to know mm-hmm. the limit i think it also i think that is also a part of being wise i think <laughs> and i'm not saying i'm wise at all i am not and i'm i really would like to be wiser uh, have you ever seen a movie by the Korean cinematographer Kim Ki-duk? Uh, I think it's called Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring Again. No. What's that about? It's exactly about uh, this, what you have just said about uh, wisdom, uh, about natural consequences, and about mentoring in a way where you are not like a strict teacher, but you're more like, you know, like an invisible hand mm. in some ways. So it's a, it's a very, very nice movie. And when I was listening to you, I kind of uh, remember mm. this. So mm. you, you might actually enjoy that. Oh, uh, it's it's a good one. That. What's it called again? Uh, What's the name? Yeah, of I'll it? give you. Okay, you can take some. It's called, Spr- it's called Spring, Summer, Fall, and Winter, and Spring Again. Uh, which uh, I will forward to you afterwards. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a great one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think this is a very good uh, place to actually wrap up our conversation. And uh, uh, I I do I'm happy that you were we're actually connected on certain parts. Uh, even speaking about the distinction between education and wisdom, because in my mind, teachers shouldn't just educate the subjects but uh, they should also help people to guide them towards wisdom, whatever wisdom is for those people, because it doesn't seem like wisdom is just one singular thing. 
It's actually a diverse, it has many forms, so to say, uh, just like there are many colors in the planet, there's many shades of wisdom. So to help to recognize their own shade and like get there, I think that's what the best what we can do. So, so I'm really happy that we connected over this topic as well. And I hope we will continue helping people to do that. Yeah, I'll try my best. <laughs> I'll try as well. It's it's hard. <laughs> uh, most of the time I fall short. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's good to recognize your flaws as well and just to understand that you're also a human being, I think. Yeah. Which is also part of wisdom once again. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> so. So anyways, Tassal, thanks for joining in today. It was lovely to have you. Uh, very interesting to learn about you as a person, about uh, you as a teacher, about you as a person from the Garu people, about India, you know, in many different kind of layers. It was a great conversation. Thanks for joining in today. Yeah, thank you, Paulus. Yeah. Yeah, and until next time. <laughs>